After we read this passage, uh, let's read the question or the answers together of Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's found on page 31 in the back of our blue Psalter hymnals. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, God's holy word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Grass withers and the flower fades. God's word remains forever. Beginning in question 62, I'll read the questions and we can respond together. With one voice for the next three, 62 through 64. So why can't the good we do make us right with God, or at least help make us right with Him? Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect, and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect, and stained with sin. How can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Well, when someone saves someone else's life, the person who is saved will usually respond in gratitude. This is a parable that has shown up in different examples of stories throughout the history of literature. The story, The Count of Monte Cristo, the main character is forced into a duel with another man, and they are ordered to fight to the death. When The main character defeats his foe, the one he is facing. He does not kill him, but he ends up bargaining for both of their lives so that they both can go on living. After the fight, the defeated foe says to the main character, I will be loyal to you forever. He says this because he understood and realized that his life very literally hung in the balance He was completely at the mercy of another, and he understood that he owed his life to him. For the rest of the story, though he is free to go in some sense, he never leaves. 
almost to the point of being an annoyance. But he gladly and joyfully serves his master from that time forward in gratitude for his salvation. This is not unlike what happens to those who are made alive in Christ. Last week we saw that we are made right with God by hearing the gospel and accepting it as true and trusting in Christ as our Savior. Nothing else can save us from the condemnation we deserve. That is the only way. But that's too easy, some people will say. That kind of message will make people morally lax and lawless. Most of the reformers showed us Uh, with miles of text written, that this is simply untrue. Not only is this the only way we can be saved, but this is the only way that we can be freed from constant terror and dread of condemnation, they would say. If we were not clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, we would be like our first father, Adam, who desperately searched around for anything that would cover his nakedness and shame. But covered in Christ's righteousness, we are free to be bold and confident to approach this new life in gratitude to God because we have been forgiven and we have been made new. We hold fast to Jesus Christ not only at the beginning of our spiritual life, but all the way through. We never leave this sure foundation. We always rest upon his merit and not our own. Not only is he our source of righteousness, but as we abide in him by faith, he gives us all that we need to live not in moral laxity or lawlessness, but in obedience to him for his glory. By faith, God forgives us and makes us righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's how we saw last week how we are made right with God. But the Christian faith continues from that point continues from that point by abiding in Christ and bearing fruit of righteousness and justice. We see from our text that Jesus Christ says that he is the vine, the true vine. The declaration that Jesus makes at the beginning of our passage is very interesting. Some commentators have suggested that Jesus thought of this illustration because he saw a vine, whether it be outside of the window or When they are walking through the town, at the end of John 14, Jesus says, Come, let us get up and go from here. And so some commentators think they were walking at this time. Where did this idea come from? Did it just pop into his head? Was he looking for some illustration to make his point? Sometimes pastors do this, don't they? It would be a bit like me scrambling for something to say right at this moment and say something like, life is like a stained glass window. But that's not what Jesus does here. He knows exactly what he is doing and exactly what he is trying to teach. He didn't just pull it out of nowhere. He is pulling from a long-standing motif throughout all of the Old Testament that God's people were described as a vine in the garden of God, Israel. Is often described that way as a vine in God's garden. Jesus, or God, in the Old Testament is portrayed as living in the midst of a lush garden on a mountaintop. That was a common way to describe the life of the gods at that time. They were thought to live on top of a mountain in the midst of beautiful plants and shrubbery. 
This picture had been used to describe not only the power of Israel's God, but also the fact that he had placed his people in a land of blessing. Canaan was a garden, a flourishing good land. Psalm 80, which we just sang, says this, you... Yahweh brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. If you read the stories of farmers who settled in our area of the country in the 19th century, you can imagine what kind of excitement they would have to get a huge plot of land for almost no money, and in some cases, no money at all. It was hard life, but the soil was fertile and they were able to grow crops. Though the wives and mothers would often be less enthusiastic about this new life, living what seemed like outside of civilization, you can imagine the fervor and the energy that would consume this new farming man to clear the land of the brush and to make room to plant his crops. He would rise early in the morning and work until sundown, desperate to see the product of all of his labors, desperate to see the the fruit of all of his hard work, to see his crops sprout up in rows from the earth. God cleared out the land of Canaan for his people so that he could plant them there and to see them flourish. But Canaan was not a desolate, flat prairie. It was a lush garden on a mountaintop, or at least that's the way the scriptures describe it. Israel had an earthly existence in Canaan and a heavenly one as God's people. They were a vine in the garden of God. After Israel is redeemed from Egypt in Exodus chapter 15, we find this in the Song of Moses. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. This picture had been reinforced for the people of Israel in different ways in their experiences. One of the most obvious ways was that at the entrance of the temple, at the the gate, at the top of the gate, when they entered into the temple, there was a huge golden vine that hung above the entrance to the gate. The historian Josephus explains that not only were there huge golden vines above the gate of entry into the temple, but there were huge clusters of grapes that descended down from them that were as tall as men. And so every time the Israelites would go around the temple or go into the temple, they would be reminded of this fact that you are the vine of God. You are the vine that God has planted in this land. We can assume that the disciples of Jesus would have had this picture in their minds as he was teaching this to them. It's even possible, as I said at the end of chapter 14, that Jesus says, let us go from this place. It's possible that they were walking through Jerusalem and they were in the shadow of the temple and right as Jesus says that, that I am the true vine, they would have been somewhere where you could have seen the entrance to the temple gate and they could have seen this huge golden vine. There are all kinds of things that we can conclude from this. One of the the most obvious things is that God does not plant his people as a vine for no reason. Just as a farmer doesn't plant for no reason and a gardener doesn't plant for no reason, they plant so that the plants might bear fruit, right? 
God does not plant his people as his vine for no reason. He plants them so that they may bear fruit. Israel was insufficient in bearing fruit. They did not become the pleasant fruit-bearing vine that they had been meant to be. Isaiah 5 is the place where God visits this motif again. The question is asked through the prophet, have God's people been the vine, the fruit-bearing vine that they have been intended to be? Listen then to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So that last verse tells us what God means when he says he is searching for fruit. He is searching for justice and righteousness. This is what it means to bear fruit for God. To live justly and righteously in the world. It's easy to see why God looks at his people and laments at what they had become. I gave you everything you needed. I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn into a corrupt and a wild vine? This picture is not completely abandoned, though. God promises that there will be a vine that bears fruit for him. That he will make a people who bear fruit of justice and righteousness. He will make a people that is not susceptible to the failures of Israel. Listen to this promise. It's in Isaiah 27, which is fascinating to think of in light of Isaiah 5. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. In days to come, Jacob will take root Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. God has just said and promised, I'm going to take out my vineyard. I'm going to take away its hedge. Briars and thorns are going to grow in it. But then later on in Isaiah, he promises that Israel will fill all of the world with good fruit. Why must God have a fruitful vineyard as his people? Because he is the God who is the source of life. He has created people to have fellowship and communion with with him. And this purpose will not be thwarted. This is why God made human beings. To enjoy fellowship with him. To bear fruit for him. This promise reminds us that God created the world as a beautiful garden on a mountaintop in Eden. 
And that was a mirror of his heavenly existence. Eden was a picture of the fellowship that God had had throughout all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fellowship with himself. Beautiful righteousness and justice. And so this brings us to this opening statement of Jesus in verse 1. Where he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. It could also be translated this way for emphasis. I am the vine, the true one. He is pointing, Jesus is pointing his disciples to his work as the Messiah. The golden vines hung over the temple gates in Jerusalem. But in another way, the truth of the vine was always hanging over the heads of the Israelites. If they looked at themselves honestly, they would realize that though God had made them to be a vine, they had not succeeded. Jesus is saying that he will be the vine that Israel could not be. He is the perfect in place of the imperfect. He is the fulfillment for the type. Later on, again, to return to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, it says this. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. What we can conclude when we look at this from our vantage point is that Christ is the one who is truly the work of the Father's hands. Christ is the one who truly exists for the splendor and the glory of God. But this highlights for us another aspect of what Christ does here in this verse. When he says, I am the true vine, this is the seventh of the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. He has said other things like, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life. And all of these sayings, in different ways, progressively work to show that Jesus is showing himself to be God in the flesh. All of Jesus' I am sayings in John hearken back in some way to Exodus chapter 3. When Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and and tells him to go back to Egypt and to free his people. Moses says, what do I say to Pharaoh? He's a powerful king. He's a powerful ruler. Yahweh says, tell him that I am has sent you. When Jesus continually is saying this in the gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the way. I am the true vine. He is showing himself to be the life-giving, divine source that will make his people new, that will allow his followers to bear fruit of righteousness and justice. And that is exactly what we can conclude tonight in light of this passage and in light of what we read from the Catechism. How is one right with God? By faith alone. Why does that make sense from the message of Scripture? Because we cannot please God on our own. We cannot follow through with the righteousness and the justice that he requires. Only Christ can do that. When we come to God by faith in the gospel, what happens to us? We are made new. And not just new creatures. We are also said to be new vines, new branches on the vine of Christ. For he not only is a savior, 
He not only deals with, with getting us right with God, but he is, as we saw a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15, he is a life-giving spirit. He is a divine source of life. And so to be made new in Christ is to be connected to this life-giving divine source of righteousness and justice and truth. And this is how life in Christ works. We are to come to him in faith as the true vine, the true Israel, the one who is righteous and obedient for us. But in faith we are united to him. And when we are united to Christ, we are united not only to his benefits, but also to his life. We are united to him in his life. And so we are given a place in the garden of the life-giving God. And that is why Jesus, when he is describing this dynamic, says that those who are united to him will bear fruits of righteousness and justice. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. But this makes it seem as though our place in Christ is dependent upon what we do, whether or not we bear much fruit fruit. This is not the thrust of what Jesus is saying. Look at the next verse. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That word for clean is the same word as the word for prunes. In other words, we are already pruned because of the gospel of Christ. We are pruned and we are being pruned. We are clean and we are being made clean. We are saved and we are being saved. We are justified and we are being sanctified. We are holy and we are being made holy. As Reformed folks, we come from pretty good stock, don't we? Some of the best thinkers, some of the best theologians in the history of the church. We're particularly good at seeing and understanding that Christ is powerful enough to save us, to give us our justification. But what we need to understand, and we can see it in our tradition, it's there, it's just not the more often quoted parts of our beloved theologians. But what we need to understand is that Christ is also powerful enough to grant us our sanctification as well. And that is no less as sure. What makes it hard for us to understand is that sanctification is largely a gray area for Christians. It is different from one person to the next and to the next. It is not uniform. It happens more or less in certain people. But all those who are made right with God and made new in Christ and made a branch on his vine are being sanctified as well as they are justified. In fact, it is only in Christ that we can be sanctified, which is what Jesus says in verse 4. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. What does it mean to remain? Other translations use the word abide, which seems to be attached to an idea of more of devotion than just remain. One of the things that it means for us spiritually to continue is to continue to do that which we have done with Christ from the start. To trust in Him. To abide in Christ and to abide with Christ is to trust in Him 
now and each day forward just like you did at the start. When you first felt like you understood the gospel and grasped the fact that you needed a savior and you trusted in him as the Messiah. You trusted in him as your salvation. To abide with Christ means to trust in him each day forward just like you did at the beginning. Just as we are made right with God through faith in Christ, so also we are kept right with God through faith in Him. We must continue to trust Christ by faith. That's how we think of it from the human perspective. Of course, we always affirm the sovereignty of God and say that the number of the elect can never be changed. And that those whom God regenerates and makes new and gives a heart of flesh, they will never walk away from the faith. But the call upon all all of us each day is to cling to Christ. Each day to believe and to trust in Him as your Messiah and your Savior. And that is why the preaching of the gospel is so vital to the life of the Christian. Jesus says in verse 7 that His words must remain in us. We are forgetful. We need to be reminded of what our Savior says. We must be reminded that the call is upon us to abide in Christ by faith. And when we are connected to Him, that divine life-giving source, that Messiah who makes us new, we can do nothing but bear fruit of righteousness and justice. We will always want to put our trust in something else. That is the pull of our hearts. Our hearts are always attached to the law and God is calling us to the gospel. We want to put our trust in the things that we do. We want to put our trust in the things that we have, in our financial security, in our education, in our family, in our house, in our beautiful church building, or in our pristine church attendance. Even to evening service. I go to evening service every week. But the call of the gospel is to trust in Christ and to trust in Christ alone when we abide in him by faith we receive not only the blessings of being made right with God eternally and in an unchangeable way but we are given the vital life-giving nourishment to our souls that comes from him the life giver this week I watched as the DeGraffs cut down a couple of trees in our backyard It took more than a couple of days. There's so much to do, so many branches to cut off, and and so many things to clear out. And as they would saw off the branches and cut the trunk into littler parts, the next morning you would look out into the backyard and you would see that already the branches that had been cut off were brown and shriveled up, and everything that was green had fallen off so quickly. And a Christian must live and abide in the vine of Christ. If you are not attached to the vine, you shrivel up. He is your source of life. You must know that your salvation is all of grace and that by faith you are trusting in the one who is faithful for you to trust him each day just like you did the first day. This produces not only gratitude, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do for us. But it produces our freedom to go into the world knowing that we walk by faith even in our sanctification. What happens when you trip up? 
What happens when the massive imperfections of your mind and your flesh and your heart stray from the glory of God? What happens when you feel like you got something 60% right and 40% wrong? Jesus is the one who makes all that we do when we live by faith and seek the glory of God, who compensates for all the wrongs that we do. He calls us to live by faith in our sanctification as well. He frees us to be able to joyfully approach the Christian life and serve him for the glory of God. That is what it means when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have freed you from the demands of the law. We mentioned earlier the passage in Isaiah chapter 60. In the very next chapter, the prophet says that the Messiah does something so beautiful. He makes his people oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. You know, as I saw these trees come down in our backyard this week, I was reminded that it's not easy to cut down a tree. It's as sturdy and as firm as anything in the world. And in Christ, we are told that we are oaks of righteousness, solid and rooted and planted, not upon our own doing, but upon Christ's doing. We are not oaks of righteousness because of what we do, for what we do is not sturdy and firm and perfect. But what Jesus Christ has done is an oak tree of beautiful righteousness and when we trust in him he makes us oaks of righteousness as well those who abide in christ are made to be a part of the vine of jesus and they will bear fruit of righteousness and of justice in varying forms and sometimes in ways that we do not understand but it is in this bearing of fruit that god is glorified look with me at verse 8 In this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Christ calls us to live unto the glory of God, saying that the Father gains glory in the obedient and faithful lives of his people. Moral laxity? Lawlessness? No. When we understand the gospel, when we understand what our Savior has done for us, from which our Savior has saved us. There is no higher calling than to live for the glory of God. There is nothing so motivating as hearing that the God who made heaven and earth wants us to live for Him so that He might be glorified in us. We do this by living by faith, by walking by faith, by, av- by abiding in the vine of Christ and bearing the fruit of works of gratitude that show we understand that we share in so great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, then send us forth out into the world eager to bear fruits of righteousness and justice as we abide in the vine of Christ, ever trusting what he has done for us ever knowing that you can bring forth these good works that you have ordained from all of eternity, that you might be glorified and honored in our lives. Give us courage to live and to walk by faith, to live loving Jesus and loving his commandments. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.